0: to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Lawrence Lessig, the Roy L. Furman Professor of Law and Leadership at Harvard Law School. Professor Lessig is someone I've wanted to talk to for a long time because his work on campaign finance made a huge impact on how I see the issue and on how I talk about campaign finance to my students. Prior to his time at Harvard, Professor Lessig clerked for not one, but two of my intellectual heroes, uh, Judge Richard Posner and Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. Professor Lessig is the author of numerous books on law, commerce, culture, and ideas. His latest, Republic Lost, version 2.0, is a revised and expanded version of Republic Lost, which... I think is the best introduction to and analysis of not just campaign finance, but the fundamental incentives that drive public policy in the United States. And what I find particularly admirable and courageous about Professor Lessig is that he has the courage of his convictions. You know, most academics write a book and then move on. Professor Lessig followed up on Republic Lost with a major campaign to enact the reforms he believes to be vital to restoring American democracy, including launching a political action committee, giving a number of TED Talks, and most notably, running for the Democratic Party's nomination for president in 2016. Professor Lessig, welcome to the show.
1: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: You know, I'd like to start with what I see as your sort of interesting ideological journey. Uh, early in your career, you clerked for two federal judges who are generally held in very high esteem by many conservatives, yet you ended up running for the Democratic presidential nomination. So what accounts for your move from the right to the left? Well, Justice Scalia
1: didn't hire me as somebody from the right, and uh, neither did Justice Posner. I, they both knew that I was, at that point, already um, a liberal. Um, but Justice Scalia, uh, at that stage at least, was keen to have at least one dissenting voice in the chambers. And Justice Posner, or Judge Posner, he should have been Justice Posner, um, uh, was just keen to have people to argue with. So um, uh, I came into both chambers and the judges knew who I was but I wasn't uh I wasn't the ideological match for either of them.
0: Okay, interesting. I I'm I'm I've always wondered that and now I have an answer. Thank you. Now, I remember getting my copy of Republic Lost when it came out in 2011 and I was really struck by the very first line in in the preface and that's there is only one issue in this country, campaign finance reform. Uh Can you explain why you started off the book with such a
1: bold statement? Well, so I stole the statement from my friend, Shank Ugar, um, who had uttered this at at a conference, and I had read about that. And it seemed a very simple, clear way to get people to focus on what, at that stage, I was uh, convinced is the foundational issue to making any progress in American democracy possible. Um, And so, uh, you know, I think that typically, um, you know, there are many books out there that that provide a kind of uh, uh, mixture or soup of, you know, all the problems that affect American democracy. But I think it's really important to try to work out what's leading to what and what's foundational, um, which if we can figure out, it would give us a good sense of what we have to uh, fix first.
0: And, and you know, I think a lot of people, when they, when they think about problems with the political system, they tend to focus on bad people, politicians who are uh, mendacious, corrupt, and that sort of thing. Uh, and that, do you see that as the fundamental problem with the system, or is it something different?
1: Well, I think that, you know, certainly our political system, like any political system, has bad people, um, has corrupt people, people who... Engage in criminal behavior, um, but I don't think that's the most important problem. Indeed, I think that's uh, on the scale of things a pretty small problem. We could eliminate absolutely every bit of that kind of corruption and not change the problem of America's governments at all. Uh, instead, what we've got to think about is a kind of corruption that was, for our framers, quite familiar, quite um, quite salient. Um, but which we um, uh, have learned to ignore or overlook. And it's and that's the corruption, not of individuals, but of systems. Um, and so uh, what I tried to do in, in Republic Lost was to introduce and really defend this conception of corruption that looks not at the way individuals might misbehave or break the rules as they exist at the time, but the way in which institutions um, can lose touch with their objective um, and therefore themselves become corrupted. And, and my view is that we've got uh, an institution, representative democracy uh, in America, which has been deeply corrupted. And my strong focus in Republic Loss was the way it was corrupted by um, the influence of um, campaign finance.
0: Our first monster today is Brooklyn. Now, Who thinks about sheets? Uh, probably not you. And you know, not me either, really, until I tried Brooklyn and sheets and realized, wow, what a major difference great sheets can make. Don't count on those bargain basement sheets you picked up at Target or Walmart back when you were in college to do the job. I mean, seriously, get yourself some quality sheets and I bet you'll notice a real difference. To me, it's amazing how much better I slept and felt the next day after upgrading my sheets. And this is why Brooklyn is so good. You get top-end sheets without having to max out your credit card paying those ridiculous top-end prices. Now, I love my Brooklyn and sheets. Try these sheets and I know you'll love them too. And brooklinen.com has an exclusive offer just for Politics Guys listeners. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use promo code TPG at brooklinen.com. In fact, Brooklinen is so confident that you'll love your new sheets that they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all of their sheets and comforters. So there's no reason not to give these sheets a try. Now, the only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use promo code TPG at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, promo code TPG, Brooklinen. These are the best sheets ever. Now, in the the book, one of the key elements, one of the key distinctions I think you make is that between quid pro quo corruption and what you call dependency corruption. And can you explain the difference and talk about uh, which of the two, in your view, is more dangerous?
1: Right. So quid pro quo corruption is the kind of basic individual corruption that the Supreme Court is constantly focused on. And that's the corruption where uh, I say I will do X if you do Y. So I will vote for um, this uh, pork barrel legislation if you contribute ten thousand dollars to my political action committee, um, and that's the kind of exchange which has been at the core of the Supreme Court's policing of so-called "quote unquote" corruption. Um, but what uh, what I what I'm focused on in in Republic Lost, especially the first version of the book. Um, is a corruption of the system of representative democracy through what I call dependence corruption. So uh, as I understand the framers um, of our Constitution, uh, especially with respect to House of Representatives, they wanted to create an institution, a representative uh, institution, which would be, as Madison put it in Federalist 52, quote, dependent on the people alone. Um, So... It's a conception of dependence. Uh, um, The dependence is an exclusive dependence, and it's a dependence on the people, which uh, the way they spoke meant all of the um, uh, people entitled to political rights, which um, uh, in the framing, at least, were all uh, white um, male property holders. Um, um, Although um, in some states, property was not a requirement. Um, So that dependence on uh, the people is the intended dependence the framers gave us. Now, over time, the conception of the people has expanded, appropriately enough, so it's not restricted to white males. It's It extends to all citizens, um, whether they own property or not. So that conception continues to be foundational. But what is important is that the uh, dependence is a dependence on all of those people. But what we've evolved in the way that we fund campaigns is a system where the candidates are dependent first upon the funders of their campaigns. Um, You don't get elected to Congress unless you can fund your campaigns. Therefore, to get elected, you gotta take that first step of raising the money to fund your campaign, and you're raising that money um, not from all of us equally, you're raising that money from funders. And funders are a very distinct slice of the American public. It's a tiny, tiny fraction of the 1% whose political views are not in any sense representative of the views of the public as a whole. So what we've done is establish a system, we're allowed a system to evolve, where the members of Congress are dependent on a slice of America which is not in any sense representative of America, and so in that sense, it's a corruption of the intended dependence the framers had, and and that's the sense, that's what I mean by uh, dependence, corruption.
0: So that system that we have now that's so dependent on big-money donations, do you think that's largely due to uh, big-money uh, electronic media campaigns? Is that, is that sort of the, the primary culprit for this uh, evolution?
1: Well, there are two kinds of fundraising that are relevant now. Um, uh, the second kind uh, is much more significant than it was, at least when I was writing my first book, um, Republic Lost Version 1. Um, But the two kinds of fundraising are, first, contributions directly to campaigns, and secondly, um, contributions to PACs or super PACs who are um, supporting a campaign or opposing a campaign. And in both cases, um, the people who are giving the significant uh, uh, amounts of money um, represent a tiny, tiny fraction of the 1% of America. Um, So, um, you know, if you think of people who give... Um, just the maximum amount uh, to um, one candidate uh, over the course of an election cycle, that's about 0.02% of America. Um, And so that tiny, tiny fraction has this enormous influence in our system because our system makes representatives so dependent upon them to fund their campaigns.
0: We'd like to welcome a new sponsor to the show, Casper. Now. There's a story behind this. I, I've got this really um, well, tragic might not be the right word, so let's say unfortunate history with mattresses. There was this full-motion waterbed I insanely bought back when I was in college. Then another non-full motion waterbed with these like individual tubes, and it ended up getting a slow leak and grew some sort of nasty-looking black mold, and that was a real surprise, let me tell you. But then a few years back, I went to a mattress store with my wife. Somehow we picked something out from all these confusing options. And even though I felt like we might have paid too much, I thought, well, you know, we're set. But that mattress never really felt great. And not too long ago, I noticed there was this big well, sort of depression in the thing. So whenever I rolled over too far, it just kind of gradually rolled me right back into my little sleep slot. You know, I felt like I was, I don't know, like a hot dog in a bun or something. And and so I tried to fix it. I got this four-inch mattress topper thing, thinking it would help, which it totally didn't. It just basically made the mattress too high. And then I finally said, you know, I need to do something about this. It's affecting my sleep. And I got a Casper mattress. There was no trip to the mattress store, no confusing options, no commission-based marked up prices like with those other mattresses. Instead, what I got was an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. And you know, I'm pretty OCD about these things. You might've picked up on that just from the podcast. Um, So I did a lot of mattress homework and I'm you almost know, embarrassed to say how much research I did on this thing. But what I love about Casper's mattress is that it's designed with this special combination of supportive memory foams, and it gives you just the right amount of sink and bounce. But it also gives you breathability, which means sleep's cool. And, and that is super important to me. I'm like some sort of bizarre human radiator when I sleep. Now, you can you should trust me on this. You trust me, right? I mean, this is a great mattress, but you don't have to trust just me. Trust the data. Casper has over 20,000 reviews with an average, an average of 4.8 stars. Plus, they give you free shipping to the U.S. and Canada and a 100-night risk-free deal. So if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. And also, it's designed, developed, and assembled in the USA. So, you know, that's nice. And best of all, Politics Guys listeners get $50 toward any mattress purchase by going to casper.com tpg. That's casper.com slash TPG. Terms and conditions apply. You know, I, now that's certainly un, unarguable, but there are some political scientists who might say that, well, while it's true that there's this ton of money coming in from a very small, unrepresentative segment of the population, research tends to show that money doesn't change votes. But, but you take issue with this research, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting how this debate has evolved. Um, You know, when I first wrote that book, it was kind of conventional wisdom among political scientists that we'd not seen really any strong relationship between um, money and um, votes. Um, But that really counterintuitive um, position um, has been challenged quite uh, powerfully, I think, by Many who um, have have you know examined this in a more um, aggressive um, uh, uh, in a mo- more aggressive way to to unpack um, that statement and and you know and that statement is you know when it's typically um, uh, when it's typically reported is very carefully framed. What they're saying is no relationship between money given and roll call votes in congress okay roll call votes are a very tiny slice of what congress does and and of course the influence that's uh money's influence happens long before roll call votes so what money does is make sure certain issues never get to a roll call vote or make sure that when an issue gets to a roll call vote it's framed in a way that benefits the money and doesn't uh, harm the money. Um, Or money can make it so that an issue gets tabled or sidetracked or never gets out of a committee. Um, So all these ways that money has an influence are not captured in an effort to relate money to roll call votes. And that's not surprising because if the system were so transparent that you could see the connection between the money given and the roll call votes, You'd have lots of criminal prosecutions of uh, for you know traditional corruption because that would be the example that would be the quid pro quo bribery, um, but I think you know there's a wonderful paper that just came out from the Roosevelt Institute by Thomas Ferguson, Paul uh, Jorgensen, and Ji Chen, um, uh, which is really I think the most powerful refutation. Uh, of the of the empirical work that tries to establish or suggest that there's no connection between money and um, and uh, and and influence. This is a paper that just came out a couple months ago. I think it's May 2017. Um, and and what they've what they show, and I think this issue should just be settled now. What they show is that it's absolutely clear that the money is being uh, deployed for the purpose of steering uh, policy, and not just the marginal policies, but really the fundamental policies. So they begin with really quite an extraordinary example I had not even heard about, um, which is um, in the decision uh, that the Reagan administration made about whether Paul Volcker would be reappointed to, um, to be the uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve. And, um, and quite blatantly, when the people from the Reagan administration were resisting reappointing Paul Volcker, the reason was that his replacement, Alan Greenspan, was much more supportive of deregulating Wall Street, so that um, uh, you know the investment banks would not be subject to the separation rules that they had under the Glass-Steagall Act. Um, and the reason why that was so important to the Reagan administration was that. Uh, Democrats were already pushing for that deregulation, and that deregulation was attracting all sorts of money to the Democratic Party that the Republicans themselves wanted as well. So here's an example of a really fundamental policy, one which um, arguably um, led to uh, the instability and the crisis of 2008, which is being picked explicitly because of its facility to um, drive money to one party or the other um and and you know this kind of example is is something which people inside of washington would find completely unremarkable um but you know that's just a measure of how per, uh, pervasive this kind of influence is
0: right you know i think the conventional wisdom is that campaign re- finance reform is sort of a uh, a left wing thing Uh, because the current system may hurt liberals, but it helps conservatives. Now, you argue, right, that the current system hurts conservatives, too. And I'm wondering if you can explain how this system is disadvantageous to conservative values as well as to liberal values.
1: Well, I think that the, um, you know, the way to see this is uh, uh, that the current system basically is a system to defeat equal representation of people inside the system. So, the people who benefit from the current system are cronies, um, and the people who are hurt are the people who are um, uh, otherwise not represented because there's so much influence the cronies. Now, cronies, crony is, you know, capitalism is the sort of thing conservatives complain about all the time, and I join them in that complaint. I think that to the extent the government's getting in the business of picking and choosing winners, um, Based on political influence by those winners, that is corrupting the e- economic process in a way which, um, uh, which uh, you know, should concern all of us. And and that corruption is not insignificant. The Cato Institute, libertarian think tank, estimates that the amount of corporate welfare in the federal budget is more than a hundred billion dollars. Um, and uh, other researchers have, you know, conservative researchers have looked at the the effect of the um, rent-seeking that's facilitated by this kind of budget and found to be multi-trillion-dollar influences on our economy. Now, so if you're a conservative and what you want is a competitive free market um, that permits, um, you know, winners to uh, to take over uh, and defeat um, losers in the market, then this system of crony capitalism, which this... Uh, which his fundraising system helps enable, is exactly anathema to that objective of, um, of a conservative as well as liberal.
0: Right. Now, there are some people who would say, well, hold on, this is a First Amendment issue, and funding political campaigns is exactly the sort of political speech that the framers wanted to protect. How, how do you respond to people who have that argument?
1: Well, I have no problem saying that... Um, people should be free to speak how they want. But the problem I'm identifying is not how they speak, it's how they contribute. And there's a difference between me going out to the market and and spending my money to speak, and me spending my money to contribute to a candidate or to contribute to an independent political action committee. And the reason that's different is just a very practical difference of what it means to live in a system where you are so dependent on raising that kind of money. That dependence creates this relationship, this dependent corruption, which I think is at the core of um, the corrupting influence of our government. And if we um, if we eliminated that need to raise money or changed that need to raise money or restricted the ability of people to contribute into that need to raise money, then that dependence would be eliminated. Now, it still would be the case under, you know, the way I think of the system that some people could speak more than others. You know, the New York Times get to speak pretty loudly and pretty clearly. Um, it might be, you know, a T. Boone Piggins or George Soros or the Koch brothers would spend their money to speak as they want. So there's some people would have more influence than other people. But just because there's more influence in the speak mark, speech market doesn't mean there's um, the kind of dependence corruption that, that I've been attacking. So I, I have no problem recognizing the important First Amendment interests here. I just don't think that the important First Amendment interests are affected by a concern over uh, dependence corruption. Right.
0: Would, would it be fair to say that this is in a sense kind of trying to strike a balance between political speech, at least as, as the court has defined it in many ways, and that, uh, that concern about corruption?
1: I, I don't like the language of balance here. Um, I, I just think it's two separate questions. Um, you know, I think it's completely appropriate to say that when the, that the government should not be in the business of mucking about with how speech affects the public. Um, you know, so in the case, Michigan versus Austin, where the Supreme Court upheld the ability of Michigan to limit corporate speech in political elections. Um, Their their explicit motivation was the corporations were having too much power in the speech market and that power was distorting the speech inside of Michigan. I I don't think that's an appropriate basis for the Supreme Court to make a judgment about speech. I don't think the Supreme Court should be protecting citizens from one kind of speech or another kind of speech. I think we citizens have got to suck it up and just make the right decision based on whatever speech we happen to be exposed to. But the kind of uh, regulation I'm talking about is not speech targeted to citizens. It's speech targeted to uh, representatives. It's speech, you know through contributions to a campaign or a political action committee that is trying to affect the representative, not the voter. And so I'm not talking about how to balance the interests of speech and um, and corruption. I'm talking about where the speech is the corruption and giving Congress the power to regulate in that context and not the power to regulate uh, where it's not the corruption. And so, um, uh, you know, I don't want to balance the amount of speech which uh, individuals are allowed to utter in the market for voters. I just want to make sure that the speech that they utter does not uh, corrupt the uh, representatives. Okay.
0: Now- Assuming one accepts your diagnosis of the problem, and I I certainly do, uh, you know, how do we fix this? I mean, given, given the Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United and what seems to me to be the unwillingness of a majority on the court to recognize dependence, corruption as a legitimate concern, what do you see as a plausible way
1: forward? Well, I'm not sure that we should give up yet on the Supreme Court understanding dependence corruption. It's never really been presented to the court. Um, and uh, and and especially now that we have a clearly conservative court, um, you know, with a new originalist to replace Justice Scalia as an originalist, I think it's, you know, certainly time, and we ought to be, um, um, you know, investing resources in making this argument more clearly to the court. Um, You know, and I think that the reason why this is important is it gives the court an ability um, to both solve the problem and save face. What Citizens United did was establish a principle interpreted as a principle that um, uh, meant that super PACs had to be protected by the First Amendment as well. But I think that's just a mistake because Citizens United was about speech to the public like the ability of a corporation to spend money to change the way people vote. And and in the case of created super PACs was about contributions to political action committees, which again raised precisely the kind of dependence concern that I think is at the core of dependence corruption. So I, I think that the court, um, which never had the chance to review the decision that um, created super PACs, could easily say, look, super PACs are not compelled by the First Amendment because that Triggers this kind of dependence corruption, um, but Citizens United doesn't trigger dependence corruption, at least as we see it so far. And so, therefore, Citizens United survives, even though um, even though the uh, um, super PACs um, would uh, be regulated, right, or could be regulated by Congress.
0: So. How did you end up going from being a Harvard law professor to uh, founding a super PAC, uh, giving these TED talks, and eventually becoming a Democratic presidential candidate? It seems like a big—that
1: seems like a big commitment. Well, I, you know, I think that we all, um, you know, should live our life both doing our work and also our work as citizens. And I, you know, I I came to believe, and still, you know urgently do, that we have an extraordinary threat facing our democracy right now that requires um, uh, real uh, um, steps to to fix. And, and, you know, I guess when I looked at the field of reform, there are many great reformers out there working as hard as they can to bring about a better system. Um, What struck me was, um, uh, you know, that there was a relatively narrow range of experiments that were being tried by people. And I think that you know, the super PAC and also the candidacy of us trying to get into the Democratic primary uh, debates, at least, to put this issue forward, um, have taught us a lot about what's what's a sensible strategy and what's a way to make this effective. And um, um, you know I, I'm not sure uh, exactly how it goes from here, um, but I am pretty clear about um, you know the the need to continue to encourage this kind of um, experimentation um, because this problem is not getting any less. it's getting much worse
0: right now wh- what did why did you decide to come out with a new version of republic loss, the 2.0 version
1: well, i um, you know my publisher was concerned that there were a lot of issues that twenty sixteen was raising that wasn't really at the core of the original version of the book. And I um, was keen to to try out a um, a simpler way to understand the nature of this kind of corruption. Um, so, um, you know, I was happy to do a um, revision that tried to uh, um, make it a little bit more streamlined and uh, appropriate to, 20, to the 2016 issues. Um, and, um, and I'm, you know, right now in the middle of finishing another book, which I hope should come out soon, that would kind of, you know, push the argument a little bit further. You know, and those... In, in Republic Lost version one, um, I was focused, you know, primarily on this question of the way money corrupts um, our political system. But what, um, you know, the my current uh, work, and, you know, you can see a little bit of this in, in version two of Republic Lost, um, you know, tries to look at this a little bit more um, fundamentally and think about all the ways in which our current system denies us a really core value of a republic, which is equal citizenship. So the way we fund campaigns is just one example, but gerrymandering is another example. The way we suppress votes um, of certain people because of their political orientation is another example. These are all ways in which we don't allow citizens to live as equal citizens in our representative democracy, and that corruption is a is a um, is a core reason, I think, for you know much of the. Inability of our government to deal with any issues sensibly.
0: Do you have reason to? I mean, do you are you hopeful that this will happen? Do you think this is something that we might actually see some significant change in? It's sometimes it's just so hard not to be so very cynical uh, about this. And so, can 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 you give us a reason to be hopeful? Perhaps that would be great.
1: You know, I think the reason to be hopeful is just. the uh, progress that um, has been made among the people in focusing and recognizing this problem. You can't see it if you look at the politicians, because the politicians continue to frame our political debate as if we were radically um, uh, different people. But, um, you know, the program for uh, public consultation at at, uh, Maryland, University of Maryland, did a survey in the middle of 2016. And what they found about Americans is that on the left and the right, there's no difference in the people's perception of the corruption of this government and the inability of the government to represent the people as opposed to funders of campaigns or corporations. There's no difference. And the views are uh, as close to u, 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 uh, unanimity as possible, like literally in the 80s and 90s percent for both Democrats and Republicans, for both uh, progressive Democrats and 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 right wing Republicans. Um, so I think that the fact that we have such a common view among the voters, um, and the uh, politicians have not yet found a way to tap into that to rise above the partisan division, it is hopeful because there's a potential. That um, that uh, you know you can imagine a politician tapping, and if uh, he or she did, then I think we could build a kind of movement for reform that it will take. So, so that's what makes me hopeful. Now, I don't think that um um uh, I don't think that there's anybody uh, buddy right now who's framed it or teed it up in a way that gives us a, a, a reason to be um, very hopeful. But that's certainly um, the reason that I I do.
0: Well, I appreciate any reason for hope. One final question for you. I know we're running short on time. Uh, Aside from your work, which I would strongly encourage listeners to check out, what resources would you recommend to uh, listeners who want to gain a deeper understanding of campaign finance and, and, and maybe even get involved to help reform our current system?
1: Well, I think that the um, there's you know any number of really great works that are being books that are being published about you know the money and and uh, um, uh, politics problem. Um, my friend Rick Hazen has a book, um, "Citizens Divided," um, which is um, which is about you know the same issue. And and you know if you want to get into a um, uh, you know understand this issue more system, system systematically. Um, you know, I think his work is really uh, a fantastic introduction. I think the really important thing, though, is to think about this more broadly. So, um, uh, there's a, a work that was really important um, to me when I was um, uh, doing version two um, uh, of uh, Republic Loss, so a book called Unlock uh, Congress, uh, and that book, um, you know, by Michael Golden. Um, um, is a really powerful look at the way in which the system of Congress itself has evolved to um, make it so that the system can't be representative of the people. Um, and he points to an idea which um, a Fair Vote uh, an organization in Washington, a public interest organization, um, has just uh, delivered on, which is a, a bill to change the way um, Congress allocates representatives so that we could create something closer to a proportional. Uh, system for rep- for allocating representatives um, uh, rather than the one that we have right now, which is subject to such um, deep and corrupting gerrymandering. Um, so I think that the, the, the really important thing for people right now is to begin to recognize that we don't have a campaign finance crisis. We have a democracy crisis. And the democracy crisis is comprised of campaign finance, but it's also gerrymandering. It's also the way in which votes um, are suppressed. And we need to find a way to um, deal with the democracy crisis generally. Um, And and I think that is going to take a lot of understanding because the politicians aren't really um, uh, in the business of providing that for us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. With that, we will close. Professor Lessig, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today.
1: Okay, great. Thank you.
0: That's it for this Politics Guys interview. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsors. Brooklinen, get $20 off and free shipping by using promo code TPG at brooklinen.com. And Casper, where Politics Guys listeners get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash TPG. We also hope you'll consider joining our Politics Guys Insiders Program, where supporting the show financially comes with exclusive extras and special updates, more commentary, additional episodes, and a whole bunch of other stuff. You can check it out and sign up at our Patreon page, patreon.com politicsguys, or by clicking on the Patreon link at politicsguys.com. Also at politicsguys.com is our free weekly newsletter, which you can also check out previous editions of and sign up for at politicsguys.com. You know, if you want to support the show without spending anything, you don't want a newsletter or anything like that, hey, maybe you can share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Also, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes is also a really big help. And if you've got a comment, question, correction, or just want to say some random thing to Jay or to me, you can reach us at mail at politicsguides.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguides page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguides. The executive producers of the Politics Guides are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorf, and Bruce Johnson. The show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Sunday. We hope you'll join us.